The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke from the 12th chapter. Luke chapter 12, beginning with the 13th verse. The Gospel reading, verses 13 through 21, can be found in the Pew Bible on page 1617. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it is a privilege to be with you this morning and I uh, bring greetings from Lutheran Church of the Cross in Laguna Woods, California, which is just down the freeway of peace. And uh, that's where Pastor Ken Whitney and I first met back in the 1990s when Ken was younger and so was I. And uh, so were our kids as well. And uh, walking that journey with them with their three boys, of course, two still with us and one home with the Lord. Uh, but it's been a pleasure to uh, walk this ministry journey with Ken too as uh, he and I were both uh, mid-career uh, converts into the ministry world. Uh, him from corporate real estate and me in the broadcasting side of the equation. So it's been fun to have our ordinations kind of parallel with each other and it's a, a great privilege to, uh, uh, I see David uh, still at uh, school every day at the Elise Vio Christian School where my office is and so it's kind of fun to see Pastor Ken in the drop-off. He looks a lot different when he's not wearing the cleric collar, I can tell you that. Um, our message today comes to us on a day that is uh, rather sad for a lot of people. Uh, when you think of what's happening in the world around us, I, uh, I went to bed last night uh, in prayer for the people in El Paso and then woke up this morning, I'll never forget, just as plain as that clock back there on the wall with the red lights on. I've got an old, I'm old-fashioned, I have a clock on my nightstand. I mean, I know that you can get your timepiece off of your mobile device, but I like having a clock. And I may even replace it with one with hands and a sweep second hand too because uh, I, I think that tells you a lot about life. But I'll never forget coming back from the restroom because you get up in the middle of the night when you're my age. And I went, <laughs> crawled back in bed. It was 4.36 and I just couldn't sleep. And so I picked up my phone and started looking at news headlines and then I saw the reports out of Dayton, Ohio. And within 14 hours, we had two mass shootings in this country. And, and it's, it's heartbreaking to think that there's so much evil in the world that leads to death and leads to destruction. And, and I, God kept bringing me back to Colossians 3, 2, though, to set your mind on the things above, to not be too burdened with the things of this life. Not that we don't pay attention to them, not that we don't think that they don't happen, 
But it's amazing how when our perspective focuses on the temporal instead of the eternal, our perspective changes. And likewise, when we put our perspective on the eternal instead of the temporal, our life changes too. In our gospel lesson today, we find a story of a guy who has a rather interesting distinction. Now, obviously, this is a parable that Jesus is telling. But Jesus uses some rather strong language with regard to this guy. Perhaps you notice the word fool showing up here. Now, as you study scripture, you'll find that Jesus is usually a little harder on Pharisees and religious leaders who should know better, quote-unquote. But when it comes to people who don't necessarily know better, he's usually a little more gracious. So why do you think in this parable he refers to this guy in this way? You know, scripture tells us that God uses the, the, the foolishness of eternity to confound the wise and that the wisdom of the cross and the gospel message that we proclaim through our life in Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. The waters of baptism don't mean anything to people outside the church. But of course, they're life-giving to us. The Eucharist that we'll be celebrating today, the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it means something to us because of what Jesus has done for you and for me, for the forgiveness of our sin. But outside of the church, if you don't have, the, have not received the gift of faith and the gift of salvation, it, it really doesn't mean anything. Why do you have that set up there? You guys drink wine at 9.30 on a Sunday morning? What's that all about? You know, I mean, that's, that's what a lot of people <laughs> get two thumbs up here in the front. But uh, not, nothing wrong with that in the right context. But we're setting our, our sights, our minds on the things of eternity and not the things of this world. So even in the midst of a tragedy, our hearts are breaking, we're grieving, we're mourning for those who were, uh, whose lives were lost. We, I, we try to fathom the unspeakable evil that would enter into the heart and mind of someone that would make them want to open fire on people like that. There, there's no justification for that at all. But the explanation, of course, is the evil that exists in the world. So as we look at our gospel lesson today, as redeemed believers, we find ourselves facing our own mortality and how do we respond to the temporal things of life and try to keep our eternal perspective. Now in verse 13, Jesus is with his disciples and they are having a, uh, a discussion, actually the first 12 verses of Luke chapter 12, they're having a discussion about what it means to stand firm in your faith in spite of all the pressures of life. And then in verse 13, we see this guy coming out of nowhere, which was not uncommon in Jesus' day. And he says, hey, Rabbi, I want you to settle this dispute between me and my brother. Now, it would not be unusual for someone to take a dispute like this to the rabbi. Rabbis had that authority in Jesus' day. You look at Moses back in the Old Testament, and his father-in-law Jethro calls him aside and exhorts him, remember? When he says, hey, you're, you're hearing all these cases. You're the judge and jury for all these different people. There's hundreds of thousands of cases coming before you. You need to have a system where you handle the big ones and you get somebody else to handle the smaller ones. So it was not un uncommon for someone in Jesus' position to be confronted with a story like this. But look at Jesus' response. He comes back and says, hey, man, I'm not your arbiter. Now, wait a minute. This is Jesus, right? I mean, he usually had the snarky, sarcastic comments for the Pharisees. I mean, you get right down to it. They should have known better. They were trying to, you know, make 
Judaism, Judaism again, or whatever. They were trying to do this perfect, you know, formation of the Jewish faith. And Jesus is like, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm right here. And you guys don't even recognize me, you blind guides. You guys should know better. But to those who didn't believe yet, whose hearts hadn't been transformed, he usually had more compassion. Why would he be so sarcastic to this guy? And then launch into a whole piece on greed. Well, let's take a look at what greed represents in the culture, what it represents for us as human beings. Because when you get right down to it, we are poor, sinful, miserable beings apart from Christ. Amen? I mean, thanks be to God for the gift of salvation that he gives to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, universal opportunity, believes very limited response. The church is very welcoming to anyone who will hear the gospel, but the gospel message of salvation is for those who believe, in the, and the word that Jesus uses in John 3.16 is a reference to like taking some money and putting it in a safe deposit box. You're putting it in one place and putting it in that trust so that it's going to earn that kind of eternal interest. So it's not just a, yeah, I believe in God and I'll just go on my merry way, stockpiling wealth and treating people poorly. It doesn't matter because I'm going to heaven. But rather it transforms you from the inside out. And so when we see somebody living what might be considered a greedy life, you have to ask yourself, well, wait, where, where are you setting your sights? What's your motivation? What's your inspiration here? In this case, if you know anything about Jesus' day, you know that when it comes to inheritances, there were some pretty strict guidelines. If you were the oldest son in a family, you hit the jackpot. Because when your dad passed away, if you were the only son, you got the entire estate. But if you were the oldest son, you got two-thirds of it. If you were the younger son or a daughter, not so much. As a matter of fact, the younger son got a third, or the younger sons got a third to divide among themselves. So when he comes up and has a question about an inheritance, I, I think we can learn a few things about his lot from the way Jesus responds to him. First, it's, hey, you're telling me what to do? And we, don't, we never do that in our prayer life, I know. We don't, we don't come up with a laundry list of things that God has to do, right? Is that what your prayer journal looks like? Never. We wouldn't do that, you know. God, we, we have to grow this church. God, I have to get that job. God, you, Lord, you've just got to. I mean, if prayer were just that easy, but it's not. Prayer is not about us telling God what to do. It's us having our will conform to his. And so when you see someone coming up and saying, hey, Rabbi, do this for me. Jesus is under no obligation to do anything for this guy. But he immediately starts teaching a parable on greed, which tells us a lot about this condition of this guy's heart. Maybe he already went to a judge, and the judge already ruled against him. Maybe it, he didn't like the outcome and said, oh, I'll go talk to the rabbi. I'll go go for a second opinion. You probably know some people like that. Maybe you have some folks in your family who are like that. It's like the, little kids do this all the time. Hey, Dad, can I have some ice cream? No. Okay. Hey, Mom, can I have some ice cream? No. Okay. Hey, Grandma, can I have some ice cream? They're just looking for a yes. And they'll go anywhere they can to get it. So here's this guy saying, hey, Jesus, settle my, set, my estate for me. Set this inheritance. Make my brother do this. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to get in the middle of that. Let's talk about greed. And then he tells this parable. Tells the parable, a, a kind of an agricultural parable, which was very germane to Jesus' day. 
about a guy who has some land, he plants his crop, he grows it, the grain comes out of the result of this, and he says, wow, look at this. I usually plant on this much, and I've got that much. How cool is that? It is kind of a nice surprise, isn't it? You make an investment of something, and then you, you are anticipating a certain return, and then you get that return instead. That's kind of neat. You didn't think your business was going to profit by 500%, and you're, wow, what do I do with this? Well, that's a good question. What do you do with this? We saw what this guy does with his, or at least what his idea is. Hmm, there's so much grain, I can't fit it all in my barn. I'll build a bigger barn. I'll tear down the old one and build a bigger one, and this grain's going to keep for years, so you know what? I'm set. I don't have to have another crop. I don't have to have another harvest. I just need bigger barns. And I'll just sit back and I'll relax. This is probably one of the only places in Scripture, by the way, where Jesus mentions anything about retirement. For those of us who are either nearing retirement age or in retirement, guess what? <laughs> I don't think that it's biblical to completely shut down, buy a Winnebago, and drive all over the country going on vacation. Just because you're not working your full-time job doesn't mean that God doesn't have some other work for us to do. Now, it doesn't mean you have to work 70 hours a week until you drop. But rather, Jesus is not too kind to the guy in this parable because he says, look, this guy says, I'm going to just kick back and relax and enjoy and eat and drink and be merry and I'll be fine. At which point then Jesus says, you fool, or you who have acted foolishly, or you who are engaging in foolish behavior. This very night, your life will be taken. That's what God says to that attitude. It's greed. It's selfishness. He has a plot of land. He has a crop that he grows every year. He has a bumper crop of that, and so what does he say? He goes all Ray Kinsella on us from Field of Dreams. Remember the movie Field of Dreams? Ray's a farmer in Iowa. He's got corn out in the crop. And he has this voice that says, if you build it, he will come. Right? And so then he gets a vision. It's a baseball field. Of course, everyone plows under their corn crop and builds a baseball field, right? That makes perfect sense. Because you can't sell corn that isn't growing. And then they do the scene. They're out there kind of cutting it down. And What's he doing? He's plowing under his crop. Kind of like, what an idiot. What are you doing that for? Well, guess what we have here is we have this guy who says, I need to build bigger storehouses. Where's he going to build them? on the property where he used to grow his crop. You know why? Doesn't need to grow the crop anymore. I got all this grain. I'm good. Let's just kind of, unless he's going to buy out other people. Now, to be fair, if he drops all this crop on the marketplace, it might lower the price of the grain. That would screw everybody else's life up. But he's really enjoying the fact that he's going to do this for himself. I want to read the passage again and see if you hear a thread. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, if you're reading the scripture, you didn't hear the 
bold, italicized, underlined emphasis that I put on there. But did you hear how many times this guy said, I, my, myself, mine? Greed takes its eyes off of the prize, which is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the eternal principles, and turns the whole focus on us. I will do this. I want this for me. Can you imagine what Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane would have sounded like if he had that same attitude? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. How about, Father, I really don't want to do this. I, I, I. But then Jesus says, but not my will, but your will be done. So when Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, how we're to set our minds on the things above instead of on the things below. And he lists all sorts of sexual immorality, all sorts of worldly behavior, and he includes greed. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to see a guy like this succeed and bless him with a huge crop. The crop isn't the problem, it's the attitude toward the crop that is. And that's where a lot of people in the world would say, boy, you Christians are crazy. How foolish is that? Shouldn't you want to make a lot of money and just blow everybody else out of the water? Shouldn't you want to have the biggest granary in town? Shouldn't you want to be the one who takes it easy and has the big storehouse so you don't have to work? Selfishly? Of course I do. Who wouldn't in your flesh want to have a permanent vacation where someone else manages your money and all you do is travel? But what are we called to, brothers and sisters? We're called to serve him, to go where he calls us to go, to do God's will, God's way. It seems foolish to the world, but it's certainly not foolish in God's economy. You may have heard the story of William Borden. Anyone remember the Borden Dairy Company? They did milk and butter and cheese and stuff. We got some... Remember Borden? I, I remember. Didn't they have like a little cow or something on there? Yeah, right, okay. Uh, just dating myself here. See, I remember growing up in Whittier before we moved to Orange County, and my grandmother uh, used to get her fresh dairy stuff from the, the dairy itself, right? So I would wake up in the morning, I'd hear the clanging of the bottles because the guy pulled up in his truck and dropped off fresh butter and fresh cheese, milk in a bottle, you know, which, which apparently they just they had a cow in the truck and they just you know, put it in there. Right? It was that pure, you know. Uh, nowadays, you have to go to Whole Foods and spend $10 on honest milk replacement or something like that. But uh, William Borden was the heir back in the turn of the 20th century to the Borden family fortune. He also uh, was born again. He was a man of great Christian faith. And so before he went into the company business that he was going to inherit, he didn't have to necessarily learn the business. It was going great. He was just going to, all he had to do was hang around and show up, collect the check. But he decided to go to Yale instead and study basically for the ministry. He showed up on campus first day in the early 1900s. There weren't that many people there who were uh, believers. He started a Bible study. By the time he graduated from Yale four years later, there were 1,300 young men coming to his weekly Bible study. He was leading people to Christ like crazy. God was using him in tremendous ways. So then, go to the family business? No, let's go to Princeton Seminary and get a graduate degree. And so he did, Master's in Divinity. And he became fascinated 
with the Islamic tradition. He really began to develop a heart for ministry to people in the Middle East. And so even though he had initially started out into seminary as one who would be reaching China eventually, kind of a few years before Eric Little, the Scottish missionary whose life story was told in Chariots of Fire, young Borden was going to go do that too. But he said, no, I'm going to finish my seminary training, and then I'm going to go and stop in Egypt for a while to reach out to the Muslims. And while there, he experienced a life-changing tragedy that actually cut his life short. When he left for Yale, right out of high school, he had a Bible that he took with him. And in the Bible, he put down two words that were his life motto for the four years that he was at Yale. And the two words were, no retreat. I'm not going back. As he got on the Yale campus and he began to realize how challenging the work was and how he needed more training and how dark the forces of evil were in the world, he added two more words to that. So in addition to no retreat, he went into seminary. Two words listed underneath it, no surrender. He wasn't going to give up. Nothing was going to keep him from the task that God had called him to. Eventually, he contracted a disease while he was in Egypt, and he was only there for a month before eventually he died in his mid-20s, never having realized his dream of witnessing the Muslims or reaching out to the Chinese. His family sailed over to Egypt. They collected his remains. They brought him back home. And as they were going through his artifacts, they came across the Bible where they saw those now six words that he had written on the inside. Remember, when he went off to college, it was no retreat. When he went to grad school, it was no surrender. And when he was diagnosed with a terminal illness, he wrote, no regrets. When we set our minds on the things above and we deny ourselves the things of this world, we can live a life that doesn't have a reverse gear. It's the very same issue that drove five young missionaries in the 1950s to go to Ecuador. You remember the story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, the Missionary Aviation and Fellowship guys. It was told in the movie, End of the Spear, and also the book, Through Gates of Splendor. And when Jim Elliott was asked, why did you guys do this? Why are you doing this? You're giving up life, career, you're American citizens, you could become pastors at home. Why are you choosing to go to Ecuador to find the worst savages of all, the Wadawni? The Aka tribe, why are you doing this? He responded, he is no fool who would give the thing he cannot keep to get the thing he cannot lose. As we come before the Lord today in prayer and also in, uh, in Holy Communion, may we be mindful of living the kinds of lives that have our focus on him to the point where we live no retreat, no surrender, no regrets.